Welcome to our study of Hebrews chapter 9. We have been talking about the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. And we discussed within that Ark was the golden pot of manna, a sample of the manna that came from the wilderness journey, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the law, that is, the law of Moses. In yesterday's program, we discussed that in Numbers chapter 17, we have the story of Aaron's rod that budded, how God used the twelve rods representing twelve tribes of Israel to determine which of those tribes the priests were to come from, because the people had been grumbling, claiming that everybody could be a priest. And so it was there that after putting those twelve rods that budded in front of the Ark of the Covenant, that on the following day they looked and one of the rods had blossomed, budded, and even bore almonds. And when they looked at the name written on that rod, it was the tribe of Levi. Now, what's the significance of this? It represents Christ, like the manna represents Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. How about the rod that budded? Well, that represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to life again, and those rods had no life in them. Yet one of them budded, blossomed, and bore fruit. That's a good representation of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And it was a testimony there in the ark that God would not only provide eternal bread through his Son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, that he would also provide resurrection. These, of course, were symbols. They foreshadowed what was promised to come in the future. Now, within that ark also were the tables of the law. The explanation of that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Moses writes, At that time the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, Then you are to put them in the chest. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made, as the Lord commanded me, and they are there now. The Ten Commandments represented a standard for the people of God. They were a holy standard, which would make them distinct from other peoples in the world. They set forth that God was holy, and he expected a holiness from his people. Now, how do those two tablets of the law represent Jesus Christ? For we see that everything in the ark represented him, including the ark itself and the mercy seat or the lid on that ark. Jesus Christ was represented by those tablets of the law in that he is the only one who ever kept them. 
And he is also the one who fulfilled what the law demanded on behalf of the sinner. He kept it all, not only the Ten Commandments, but everything else that the law required in order for man to be accepted by God. You haven't kept the law, nor could you, nor have I. But God demands perfect obedience to his holy law. He can't compromise that. For to do so would be compromising his character. He must insist on the punishment that the law called for. If we broke the law, we must get what the law demanded. Now that's trouble for us all, of course. But there's hope and there's peace because Jesus Christ came and he paid what the law demanded. So when God forgives us now, he's not forgiving us out of mercy he forgives the sinner out of justice because the payment has been made and made in full. God has not compromised anything when he forgives the sinner. He is righteous and he is just in forgiving us our sins because someone else paid what the law demanded. Now, for the sake of our listeners who were not with us in yesterday's program, I want to read again, beginning with verse 3. Behind the second curtain stood a tent called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which contained a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In verse 4, we have mention of the golden altar of incense. That's all described in the Old Testament in both Exodus 30 and Leviticus chapter 16. And the golden altar of incense was outside of the Holy of Holies. That, now listen to the instruction from the book of Exodus concerning this golden altar of incense. Beginning with verse 6, it says, and you shall put this altar in front of the veil, that is, near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat, that is, over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. What we have just read goes back 1,400 years before Jesus Christ. But just before Jesus Christ was born, we also have the Jews practicing this very thing. We read about it in Luke chapter 1. I'm reading from verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. And it's at that time when an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and he announced to him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. That son was John the Baptist. Now the burning of the incense apparently symbolized the prayers of God's people to the Father. For the angel said, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Well, now we want to move on. For the writer says at the end of verse 5, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and I have given more detail than he has. But, of course, he didn't have to give the details that I do because the Jews knew about those things. Those things were very much a part of their religion, of course. Now, the author begins with verse 6, saying, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go continually into the outer tent performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various ablutions, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. According to the late William Barclay, that New Testament scholar, the people of Israel stayed outside the courtyard looking through the gate to see the sacrifice on the brazen altar. It had four horns on it, and they could see the blood. It's a picture to us that none today can come to God unless they see the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed on the cross. He was the Lamb of God. And why this matter of blood? Well, the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood there can be no remission. God sets the rules for what takes away sin. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of the animal that made a covering for sin. And after Jesus Christ died, we have the announcement that his blood washes away our sins. Peter called it the precious blood of Christ. Now the writer tells us that the priests and the Levites could enter the court, but only the priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could go beyond the veil. And he went there for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Now Jesus does the same for us. And the high priest, of course, pictures or foreshadows Christ, our high priest. He didn't have any sins that he had to take care of, none of his own, but he became a sin for us. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now, all of what has been written here in chapter 9 by the writer seems to be summarized or uh, clarified in verse 8. He writes, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. It's the Holy Spirit here who is said to do the teaching. He's teaching that there's no access to God directly. It must be through a priest. And there is no access into God's present until Christ's sacrifice 
has been offered. Do you have a priest? You need a priest. You can't approach God apart from a priest. In the Old Testament, it was the Aaronic family of priests. But today, we have a new priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest who has entered into the sanctuary in heaven in the very presence of God on our behalf. We do have a priest. Yes, everybody needs one, and God provided him, Jesus Christ, a high priest forever. Could the people in the Old Testament approach God? No. They couldn't go into God's presence. They would die if they went into that holy of holies. Only the high priest could do that. And that's what the Holy Spirit was indicating. As long as that sanctuary was standing, it indicated that the true sanctuary in heaven, where the presence of God is, had not yet been opened to people. But thank God it is opened. We can pray directly in the name of our high priest. Pray to the Father and pray with confidence because of our high priest in heaven. In closing, let me remind our listeners that if you haven't written for your free copy of our Grace Booklet, we invite you to do so today. This 30-page booklet will tell you all about the grace of God. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace, but it also tells us that we ought to live by grace. Learn about grace from our free booklet. Ask for the Grace Booklet. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.